Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Neutral, the show where we rate soups by their color coordination. I just ate some chicken tortilla soup the other day. Pretty well coordinated. I don't know. I've been really into chili lately. Does that count? Ooh, is chili a soup? Tell us in the emails. Yes, please. Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Neutral, the show where we discuss and debate the D&D alignments of fictional characters. My name is Avery. My name is Jack, and we are we're not doing Batman productions. We've got a 20-sided die and a list of characters we could potentially talk about. Now we're going to give you guys a brief bit of background on the character and how familiar we are with them, and then one of us will make a case for what their alignment is, and the other of us will make their case, and then we're going to talk about it. Hey guys, this is our 10th episode, besides the special episode we did, of course. Um, I'm just really excited. So this is our 11th episode. I'm not numbering the special episode. It's a special episode. That's fair. So numerically, this is our 10th episode. All right. We've been doing this for 11 weeks. (laughs) Something like that. Almost three months now. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, seriously. Um, So we want to get started? All right. I got this big die and I rolled a six. Milo Thatch. Uh, You got to give the background on this one. Not a problem. So Milo Thatch is the, uh, I I hesitate to say protagonist, but definitely the perspective character of the Atlantis the Lost Empire film, which was uh, released in either 2001 or 2002. It was part of uh, the uh, Disney animation renaissance. Uh, It was a uh, very out-of-character film for Disney. Uh, This weird, like, early modern tale. Um, So the film follows the character of Milo Thatch. He's a, a scrawny, weedy guy. Uh, he's a deeply underappreciated uh, academic. He believes in his, I think his grandfather's uh, beliefs that the lost city of Atlantis could be found. Uh, and he gets the financing to create an enormous uh, submarine to find the lost city of Atlantis. Finds the lost city of Atlantis. Saves the lost city of Atlantis from his own expeditionary force. Uh, and then ends up uh, staying in the city to help them recover their lost heritage. I'm not going to talk about the second movie because it's very weird. Okay. Um, I think that, for me at least, it's pretty cut and dry that Milo is chaotic good. Okay. And the reason I say that is because he always wants to do right by the people of Atlantis, especially his love interest, uh, but the people in general, you know? Um, and when he has the opportunity to do so, he does, in spite of his own expedition group's uh, thoughts and ideas. I, um, for me at least, I think this is pretty cut and dry. He... I don't know, maybe he could be neutral good, uh, but the fact that he, like, is pretty consistently, like, going against academic, like, convention to follow his own beliefs seems pretty chaotic good to me, too. I actually do think he's neutral good. Um, for the first act of the film, part of the reason he wants to become the discoverer of Atlantis and find the lost city, it's not to prove the other uh, the other academics wrong, it's to become a part of that elite group. He wants to be, like, a member of the, the respected academia. He doesn't want to be, like, tearing down the system or anything, he wants to join the system. Okay, I can get behind that. My only uh, my only concern about that is if he really wanted to join the system, he would he would have stopped pursuing his Atlantis thing because like that's something that's so out there that potentially he like if he really wanted to be a part of that system, it would be much easier to abandon it. All right, take a pause for a second. Uh-huh. Is your convictions about a special interest enough to affect your alignment more than your moral values? That is a very good question. I think when your special interest aligns 
you in opposition with the organization that you respect, then yes. Because your options are follow your own personal heart or align yourself with society. And like we t- we've talked about characters that are outcast because of various things and it's not always morality. That's a fair point. Um, I think you've convinced me. I'll, I'll say uh, Milo Thatch. Yeah, good. Alright, uh, let's talk about Team Rocket. Oh boy. You're giving the background on this one. Okay, so uh, we are speaking specifically of Jesse and James from the Team Rocket anime. From the Uh, Pokemon anime. Is it? Continue. (laughs) No further questions. So Jesse, James, and Meowth are recurring members of an organization called Team Rocket. uh, And they are also Team Rocket because they're the Team Rocket members we care about. Uh, They are not wildly competent for the most part. They have shown moments of competence, but they focus so intently on capturing Ash's Pikachu because that Pikachu is very strong and keeps electrocuting them. And they think that that Pikachu is going to make their boss, Giovanni, happy. Uh, like he, uh, every time they want to catch a new Pokemon, they, especially in the early seasons, they have this fantasy of Giovanni smiling and being like, oh, this Pokemon has done such wonderful things for my life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse and James. Um, Meowth is also very complicated because he taught himself to talk to impress a girl and then the girl Meowth thought he was weird and freaky, so it didn't work. Um, they have maintained a presence in all of the Pokemon anime, as far as I know, uh, for ever, uh, including appearing in basically all of the movies, uh, continuing to harass Ash, and sometimes aligning with him in order to face a larger threat. I will say this much, as far as I know, despite the fact that they are the usual day-to-day antagonists of the show, they have never been an overarching plot prota- uh, antagonist. Even when Team Rocket is explicitly the bad guys, the three of them always end up either out of the picture or aligning with Ash to defeat the greater evil. The rest of Team Rocket seems to seem see our Team Rocket as basically just like an incompetent nuisance. Which is what I, what why I'm going to bring up another thing before we get into this uh, the alignment of this. We've been watching uh, Shira, Princess of Power, for the past few weeks now. Uh, we're midway through season two right now. We're almost on to season three. And the character of Scorpia is basically their Team Rocket. Um, yeah, basically. Yeah, like constantly obsessed with impressing her boss. Uh, very, like, endearingly uh, incompetent. Um, and that being the case, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they are true neutral. And here's my uh, argument for why. They are never interested in actually hurting anybody. Even when they want to capture Pikachu, they there's no fantasies about, like, torturing Pikachu. It's always just hand him off to our boss and be done with it. Um, that sort of, like... I. I that sort of, like, disregard for either uh, uh, the good or the bad of the situation f- puts them squarely in the moral neutrality. I call them nu- neutral in the lawful chaotic uh, spectrum because they are part of a lawful organization, and I think no one can argue that Team Rocket is a lawful organization, but at the same time, they themselves are, like, weirdly strongly chaotic energy. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, if you inhabit moral extremes, you end up in the, in the neutral sech- section. And we've talked about that before a little bit. Uh, So that's my argument. I want to also mention, uh, in terms of having chaotic energy, at least James, but I'm pretty sure all of them, have run away from their society in some fashion. Jesse was like a rich girl who bailed... James, or was Jesse poor and grew up on the street? I think so. I yeah. think James was the rich guy. James one. was the rich guy who bailed. Jesse bailed on her life. Uh, like, 
they don't feel any loyalty to the lives that they live. James especially feels no loyalty to his family. They're very much outcasts. Yeah, and but they're also part of an organization and they follow those rules. So I think follow, putting them strictly into neutral is a good call. Cool. Um, I want to uh, also just, you know, build on that. Team Rocket is very much a me and mine kind of group. Like, when they want to capture Pokemon, it's so they make their boss happy. Not even, like, make Team Rocket it stronger. Just make their boss happy. Like, a lot of the time they want to capture the Pokemon because they think it'll like make Giovanni laugh or like be able to make them make him nice tea. Like, there's clearly no sort of sense of wanting power or even prestige. Like, they'd be excited to get promoted, but mostly they just seem to want to make their people happy. And when they get involved and they're willing to align themselves with Ash, nine times out of ten, it's because their skin is on the line. Like, the world's gonna end. They don't want to die. All right, I think we have uh, reached a consensus here. Yeah. Team Rocket? Neutral. neutral. And delightful. Also delightful. Also stupid. Uh, let's talk about Hamish Abernathy. Oh boy. All right, go for it. Okay. Hamish Abernathy. Now it's been a while since I read and or saw these, these, this media, but we're going to cover the best we can. Hamish Abernathy is District 12's only living survivor of the Hunger Games. Until Katniss, uh, Ever- what's her last name? Everdeen. Yeah, Katniss Everdeen. Until Katniss Everdeen shows up. Kamich Abernathy survived through some very traumatic experiences, um, and won his, uh, his challenge basically by setting aside his humanity. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember it being really screwed up. Um, he is driven to drinking by the situation, uh, and his entire motivation for the first book is just keeping Katniss alive. He thinks Katniss has the better chance between uh, her and her uh, rival, Peter Malark, uh, of surviving, and he doesn't want to lose. Now, it should be important to note, this happens every year. It's been 25 years since Hamish uh, won his uh, challenge. He has coached two people, two children, every single year since then, and not a single one of them has survived ever since. So he's a very jaded guy. Um, It turns out later on that he's part of the Rebellion, uh, and he becomes like a leading force in in, uh, rebel actions in future uh, stories. I don't remember quite what comes of him by the end of the story, uh, but I do know that he survives and does like get some character growth. I think he stops drinking at one point. Um, So he's definitely, uh, uh, he he gets his his day in the limelight. Do you want to tell me what you think his alignment is? Yes, I know a shocking amount about Hamish Abernathy. Um, So I think he's chaotic good. Okay. And I'm going to give you my whole theory on why. Hit me. So, uh, Hamish was in the Quarter Quell, his first, uh, his first, the first... The 50th. Yes. Yeah. And his Quarter Quell issue was that there were double the number of tributes. There were a ton of people. Hamish bailed. He didn't bail on the Hunger Games, obviously you can't. But his whole shtick was that he ran away and he used the force field to protect himself. He actively avoided, when he could, doing harm to other people. Um, which I think is very, like, you do what you have to to stay alive here but avoiding it as much as possible in a situation that traumatic I think is indicative of a good person. Um, He's not as into saving his skin. He is into saving his skin but he's not as into it and he did have a girlfriend to go back to and parents. Um, However, the Hunger Games people, the capital, did not like this strategy. They thought it was bad TV. So they killed Hamish's family and girlfriend, uh, leading him to be as terribly jaded as he is today. We've talked a lot about characters that are damaged. 
and are therefore incapable of reaching their alignments. And that's where Hamish is at for those 24 years before Katniss's first Hunger Games. Um, he's jaded, he's miserable, he doesn't feel like there is a chance to fight against the capital. And so one could argue that at that point he's chaotic neutral, but I would argue he's just damaged good. Um, and then when he's given hope through Katniss, through the rebellion, through PETA, honestly. PETA more than Katniss, I would say. Katniss is a wildly unpleasant person and PETA's just got this big heart and all this love. And that's the kind of thing that gives you hope. I'm team PETA, fight me. But Hamish, when given the opportunity, gets more gung-ho about the rebellion than Katniss does. He wants that, this terror to end. Uh, he aligns himself with people uh, in order to not just get what he wants, but also to protect those people. And ultimately, when uh, Coin gathers all the former winners around and is like, who, wa uh, who wants to set the Capitals kids into the Hunger Games? Hamish is one of the people who's most against it. Ultimately, he votes yes because he trusts Katniss and believes that Katniss was, has a plan. And But he is the one or one of the people that is very like, you can't do that. That's not fair. Fair. That's not right. Uh, I think with the exception of his damage, he, from his childhood into his adulthood, into the rebellion, always when he feels like he has the power, is opposed to the capital and opposed to loss of human life. And I, that puts him firmly in chaotic good for me. I definitely want to mention at this point that we're we're going to talk about trauma and, and uh, damage and how that can affect your alignment at some further date in a great deal more detail. Uh, but that is a beautiful rendition of what uh, damaged chaotic good looks like. For So thank you for that, Avery. Uh, you have strong PETA energy. Aww. Uh, I also just want to point out at this point, uh, before we end this podcast, Milo Thatch, our first character for this episode, definitely a trans man. I love that. Yeah. I'm I'm big in support of that. Big right. strong energy. Big strong, big strong trans energy. And like all the cis people out there who are like, I don't know if that's legit. That seems like a really stretch for a headcanon. Literally every trans man you ask will be like, no, that's legit. That is a hundred percent on board. Oh yeah. Alright, so hey Mitch. One uh good. Alright, one more. Let's do one more. Nine. That is... Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore. Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. All right, go ahead. <laughs> He's 150 years old. He is, at the time of the series, the headmaster of the uh, Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry. Uh, he is also, I believe, a member, perhaps the uh, head of the Wizengamot, which is Wizard Court. Uh, he turned down... No, that's right. He turned down the option to become a member of the court. Um, he's also, for some reason, not on the board of directors. I think that could just be, like, a con conflict of interest. Um, he is arguably the most powerful wizard uh, since Merlin. Uh, at least the story presents him as such. Um, he is, uh, for the stretch of time that we know him, focused uh, almost entirely on two things. First and most importantly, the defeat of Voldemort and the destruction of, of uh, magical supremacy as an ideal. And second, and this is important, but second, the protection of his school and his students. Uh, he is, um, he's the consummate chess master. Every single move he makes is 10 steps ahead. Um, even when he admits he's made mistakes, he does so for very human reasons. Like, I, I, I fell for it. I wanted uh, the... the 
And that's part of, actually, I do want to bring this up real quick before we get into his alignment. Part of the reason he turns down the choice or the, the opportunity to become a member of power, and they say over and over and over again, hey, you could be running for uh, Minister of Magic. You could be in charge of everything. We'd all vote for you. He turns it down because he remembers what it feels like to have power, and he doesn't trust himself with it. Uh, I have a thought. Okay. Uh, it's not really a in alignment thing, but uh, I have two things I have to say before I make my uh, statement. Okay. The first is that uh, there may be some underlying bitterness in my discussion of Alvis Dumbledore because of the recent uh, kerfuffles about J.K. Rowling. As a trans guy, it's really upsetting to hear J.K. Rowling say such virulently transphobic nonsense, and therefore there might be a little bit of bitterness. I'm going to try to keep it out. Okay. But... Uh, I think that's important to note. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is, this is really a discussion of whether or not doing something for the greater good makes you good. Yeah. I think it does. In the reason I say, at least in this particular instance, I think I would call Dumbledore neutral good. And the reason I say this, and not everyone is going to agree with me here, and I understand that, but in this particular case, there. The any move that Dumbledore makes for a small term good is dangerous because the consequences of failing to defeat Voldemort are so high. That's a risk to every single person in the world, not just the wizard world, but the muggle world everywhere. Space. Space. Uh and Pig farts. Pig farts too. Yep. Uh but I uh I think and part of the reason I call Dumbledore neutral good is because he clearly understands and cares that he is hurting people in the short term. I think a lot about that uh, for other reasons, but I think a lot about that scene at the end of The Order of the Phoenix that is not in the movie, which is incredibly upsetting to me, where Harry is running around smashing everything and being angry and having trauma and puberty happening. And Dumbledore is genuinely like, I am so sorry. I made mistakes here because I thought they were the right thing to do to stop Voldemort and I was wrong. And I think that the fact that he cares and he tries to make up for his mistakes and when he hurts people it's because he understands that that short-term pain is an important sacrifice for the long-term goal of defeating the ultimate evil and he always tries to make up for it when he can so i agree with you first of all i think actually he's lawful good uh just because he's a very like he is a keystone of the setting structure and law systems so we've already talked about how you don't have to be lawful if you're making the rules i understand that i do still think he is lawful um i think his moments of accepting uh or of of breaking uh the the status quo are in service of the law more than they are in defiance of it uh, more often than not um um, that being the case, D Albus Dumbledore is a very difficult character to come up with a solid alignment for. I honestly, until this conversation, did not have a good answer, which is part of why I was so excited to talk about him. Um, Dumbledore is... Dumbledore has done a lot of damage to the people he touches. Um, first and foremost, and perhaps most uh, damning... Sorry. Uh, perhaps most... Uh, uh, Strikingly, leaving Harry with the Dursleys, which left Harry with some serious trauma for the explicit purpose of making him easier to mold in the future. Now, that is not a good aligned act under any circumstances. But I think Avery has a very good point in that uh, the service of your... Sometimes you have to wait, because nothing happens in a vacuum. There's context for every action. And sometimes you do have to weigh the damage you are doing against the damage you are preventing. Now, I'm not, I'm not a utilitarian. Uh, I, I don't believe that uh, 
good and evil should be a quantifiable thing. You can't, if you, if you, you know, kill ten people to save a million, you've still killed ten people and you're still a murderer. That being the case, Albus Dumbledore has seen firsthand what evil does to the world. I will remind you that in Harry Potter canon, World War II was caused by wizards. The Nazis were all wizards. And this is another thing on that scale that's about to happen, and he's doing his level best to keep it from happening. And as someone who has a lot of personal, like, family reasons to to be upset about World War II, uh, if there is an action you can take to knowingly prevent genocide, you take that action, no matter what it does to you. See, and I think, um, I have a couple of thoughts uh, a, I think I do relinquish lawful because of that bit in the second book when he willingly goes off to, with the ministry uh, when everything is crazy. Um, but I, I think that the thing that makes Dumbledore good, even though he does these reprehensible things for the greater good, is because when he thinks he can, he always does the small term good too. He makes the sacrifices he feels like he has to, but he always does try to also do good in the short term when he can. He doesn't always get to, but I think it's important that he always tries. Um, there's some thunder. I'm sorry if it shows up on the recording. Uh, the other thing that I think is important is, like, Dumbledore is a deeply human person. He makes a lot of mistakes. He just does. He admits most of them. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why it's difficult sometimes to see him as a good man is because we're not in his head the way we are with Harry, for example. Harry also does certain things that aren't really kosher, you know? Like, he is not always the best dude, but he's always doing what he feels is right for the greater good. And if we were in Dumbledore's head, I think we would be a lot more, a lot quicker to say, yeah, he's a good person. He's trying his best. I will also point out to those of you who I know are saying right now, he only sees Harry as a pawn. He never actually cared about Harry. In the sixth book, when they go to the cave on the rocks by the ocean and they find uh, the um, the necklace uh, that is a fake because Regulus Black already stole the old original. Regulus Black brought Creature along and had Creature drink the, the uh, potion uh, that drove him to madness. Dumbledore brought Harry along and then drank drank the potion himself. Like, knowing that Harry would be fine, or rather not knowing, but like, knowing that, uh... He's a uh, healthy young man. Knowing that it might kill him, that he still drank the potion himself, knowing that it might kill him, knowing that it might make Harry's task considerably harder in the future, but because he knew that if Harry drank the potion, it could kill him. And he wanted Harry to live, and he was willing to sacrifice himself for that cause. I think this is my last statement about it. I think the reason that Dumbledore is pretty definitively lawful good is because you have to be willing to die for your beliefs. Yes. And Dumbledore died for his beliefs, mm -hmm. both to protect Harry, protect Draco, and set them up for the greater good of defeating Voldemort. Dumbledore died to protect Draco Malfoy's soul. Now, I am a Draco Malfoy stan, but that is a brave, brave move. That is very good aligned. Yeah. I also probably wouldn't have died for Draco Malfoy in those circumstances. Yeah. I like Draco. Um, so yeah, I think Dumbledore is... Lawful good.
All right, everybody, thank you for listening. I hope you had a good time. I know we did. If you disagree with any of us or think there's something we left out or just want to say hello, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, We'd also really appreciate if you have any suggestions for characters to talk about on a future episode. This show is made by We're Not Doing Batman Productions. If you have comments or recommendations, email us at wndbproductions at gmail.com. That's when narc dragons bounce at gmail.com. Sorry, when narc dragons bounce productions at gmail.com. Also, we have a Patreon. You get some cool stuff like... Uh, getting to hear the episodes a week early, getting to hear uncut versions of the episode, or getting your character uh, to be given priority in requests. Also, uh, apologies for not doing this earlier in the episode. Thank you very much to our patron Sam Morrison. You specifically are the reason that this podcast is possible. We love you guys. See you soon. <laughs>